This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 33 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Today, we're taking a closer look at the IoT, the Internet of Things. It's a wide-ranging category, covering everything from connected thermostats, refrigerators, and security cameras, to industrial control systems, self-driving cars, and medical devices. It's hardly an exaggeration to say that if a device has a power source, somebody's thinking up a way to connect it to the Internet. And with that comes opportunities for improving our lives and the world we live in, and risks to our security and privacy. Our guest this week is Chris Poulin. He's a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton, where he leads their Internet of Things security practice. Stay with us. Devices have been connecting to the Internet for a long time. Um, And in fact, it's kind of interesting. Way back in my career, I was always fascinated where physical and digital meet. And so I would say probably around 2009 or so is when I sort of realized that the Internet was a place worth other things, you know, so beyond, for example, industrial control systems, which had to send their telemetry, you know, so pumps say, you know, saying how fast their motors were spinning, how much heat, how much pressure was in pipes, et cetera, et cetera. All of that was being reported in industrial control systems. And I'd say that was probably one of the first what we would consider nowadays to be uh, Internet of Things things. Um, so there was always this awareness that they were connected. And then the rest of the world decided that they were going to connect other things like cars. And so, for example, OnStar and Uconnect and you know all of those things have been connecting cars back to a call center for a long time, but it used mobile airwaves. So, you know, you could argue that those things were connected. And then the same mechanisms that connected them back to the call centers also started to report back telemetry from the cars. So, you know, things like brake events, uh, different uh, conditions that might happen. Also ways that um, the car manufacturer could... Uh, ostensibly pre-program certain features in a car, you know, so for example, um, somebody like Sirius XM, not a car manufacturer, but, you know, part of the, the tier, tiered suppliers, obviously, could add new features to the radio stations or or whatever. So cars were part of it. And then all of a sudden, I would say about 2010, 2011, I don't know exactly when the uh, term was coined, the Internet of Things became a thing and people and it's funny because I think sometimes the the tail wags the dog. Mm. And so once people said IOT, all of a sudden everybody had this light bulb go off and say, wow, we could connect everything to the Internet. We can connect, um, you know, so, for example, our thermostats, we can connect uh, toothbrushes, which are ridiculous, but they're out <laughs> refrigerators, there. refrigerators, right. Shower heads is actually a connected shower head out there for for good or bad. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think it monitors how much water you use and the temperature, and I, I, I have no idea. Uh, so, but so if you think of it, somebody's going to connect to the internet is what it boils down to now. And uh, so, you know, around 2012 or so, I had an aha moment too, which was effectively this is what my entire career was waiting for was the fact that people acknowledged that um, things, phys- the physical world, would connect to the digital world. And uh, I have to say, over the last five years or so, it's been an interesting and fun ride, both from a functional perspective and from a security perspective. And when you say your career was waiting on this, what do you mean by that? 
back in, oh God, I can't even remember how long ago I started getting into security, but, uh, you know, the late 80s, mid 90s, probably. Um, and security comprised largely firewalls, intrusion detection systems, antivirus, endpoint protection systems, as we now call them. And I always thought that there was this um, capability for something more to be added to the mix. So I'll give you two defining moments. One was I was at um, uh, RSA conference. Uh, I want to say it was around 2000, let's say 2000, 2001. And Computer Associates had something they called CAE Trust 2020, I think was the name of it. But what it showed was there was this beautiful graphical display of three floors in a building, and it mapped out the floors, so the doors, the the bathrooms, the cubicles, offices, et cetera, et cetera. And the point of this thing was that you could actually monitor people's behavior within the physical space and then look for anomalies. Presumably, for example, for somebody who's going to try to break into the server room, for example, and steal one of the backup tapes that they would, you know, that's one way to steal uh, information mm-hmm. or or whatever I, you know think of think of any uh, mission impossible scenario that you want it was an interesting perspective to see that visual and start to think about the physical world and using something that we did in it which is an intrusion detection system and blending those things together so that was the first uh, the first aha moment for me the second one was when i was working at q1 labs and somebody said well, what's the future of sims you know, and SIMs typically take in firewalls, intrusion detection, host endpoint protection, network uh, flow data, et cetera, et cetera. And you write rules around those things. The thing that was the most important in the SIM world, and still is, is adding context. So you can pull in a lot of data, but until you actually add context to the data, it doesn't really make any sense. So example would be that you see network flow data and maybe some uh, logs from somebody logging into a source code server or something like that. And you can infer from source IP address that maybe this is your contractor who works out of Kansas or something that's accessing, and they should have access to it. But there were a lot of use cases where people wanted to bring in HR data, for example, that said, yeah, this is a contractor. This was their start date. This is their contract end date. So now you can add uh, context to say, well, I know what this IP address is, and I know it belongs to the Acme Corporation who's providing subcontracting services, but their contract ended two weeks ago, so why are they still accessing the system? Hmm. You know, really simple example. But it is context. So when they said, well, what's the future? Uh, having a background in the military, you know, I think about SIGINT, but I also think about HUMINT and um, OPSEC and all those other fun acronyms that they use in the, in the DOD. And I said, look, what we really should be pulling in are not just threat intel that we think about, you know, bad IP addresses from websites, but also things that come from typical human intelligence and, you know, think about deniable operators who are working in remote regions where we might have enemy agents who are trying to move against us in some way. Um, and so that sort of brings the physical side of, of security into the digital side where we're actually saying, look, we've got these bad actors. They're going to conduct some kinetic operation against us. And can we pull that intel into our sims and have this, this aggregate view of what constitutes threat? Not only what is considered uh, active network traffic and events in the in your IT environment and you know maybe your OT environment, but also who are the threat actors? How are they actually moving against the? What are some of the early signals that they might actually be conducting? For example, an operation against their energy and utility uh, grid or or whatever. So it might all start, or at least be there might be some preliminary signals that come out of the physical world. 
So, and that sort of set the stage for the next step, which is obviously the Internet of Things, at least for me. I think it also laid the groundwork for how we use threat intel today. And the example that I would give there is we go into dark web and we look for people chattering in chat rooms and in uh, forums saying, hey, how can I, for example, clone a key fob for a car? And, you know, to some extent, we're using digital means to determine where there might be kinetic threats. And, you know, by the same token, we can also use that same threat intel to inform, in that particular case, automotive manufacturers that there are vulnerabilities in the key fobs and that there are threat actors who are looking to exploit them. What about this sort of blending of systems that I think has has happened with the IoT? And I'm thinking specifically of things like security cameras. You know, it used to be that your organization, your building, had a system of security cameras, and chances are they were analog cameras that were running, you know, coax cables that had video baseband signals that went back to a, a, you know, maybe even a stack of VCRs before there was digital recording. And, of course, now that's all IP um, and so there are great benefits to that, being able to monitor, you know, all over uh, however you want and being able to store much more than you used to be able to. But there are downsides as well. Yeah. You know, actually, that particular statement captures the essence, I think, of the IoT in general. And we should probably dig into that here in a few minutes. But on the um, topic of security cameras, absolutely right. And it's kind of interesting is that I remember some movie where they go into exactly what you said, into the Uh, video surveillance room and they've got this stack of uh, VHS tapes and of course they they cycle through them you know so you might be able to keep seven days worth or whatever right but so now we can keep them perpetually because obviously the the storage is much cheaper now but also the image recognition because we're recording it digitally is a enabled and b pretty uh, sophisticated and so you know for example in a previous job that I was working at we were able to ask a pretty lengthy video stream to find all men uh, who were wearing red shirts, for example. Hmm. And so the video analytics was able to pick out to identify male versus female, not perfectly, but you know, pretty definitively. It would, it's better than you sitting there looking through you know, two weeks' worth of video and you right. know, scrolling through. And then it was clearly red is a color, and that was pretty easy for, for video to identify. But the fact that it was a shirt is kind of where things get a little complicated, right? So, you know, mm. you can find red pants, you can find, what if it's a picture of a guy wearing a red shirt? So that's where things, you know, the subtleties of video analytics come in. But we get better and better at training these things. And, and so that's one of the places where we can actually take artifacts from the physical world and turn them into digital intel that we can then merge against digital assets or, you know, other digital uh, intelligence and, and come up with some interesting insights. But in the past, you know, that, that security network would have been segregated from the rest of your network, and today that might not be the case. That's true, and yet it probably should be segregated to a large extent, although connected provisionally. I guess that's probably the best way to say it. Yeah. So I think it's funny because we've gone from one side of the pendulum to the other, which is that, you know, it used to be that operational technology, so your industrial control systems, maybe your building control systems, were completely separate from the IT systems. And in fact, there was this whole movement to air gap things. Um, and then data, data diodes came about. The philosophy behind that was that 
in the OT environment, you want to send telemetry back to IT systems so that you can have this uh, you can have this consolidated view of the world, you know, and largely with telemetry and events and things like that. Maybe sending it back to a sim or or whatever, or maybe just to an auditing system. But the diode part is that you shouldn't be able to access the OT network from the IT side because the OT assets were far more sensitive. You know, you could actually open up floodgates. Uh, Literally, if you're dealing with water, uh, water and utilities, um, or you could affect an assembly line, or you could, you know, cause a nuclear power plant to explode, or something like that. Whatever, whatever it was. But that's sort of the danger of the IoT in general, anyway. Um, so what we've done is sort of after that, which is the intermediate step, is we said, hey, we want to have a complete convergence between these two things. And I think a lot of people have gone too far that way in that they haven't thought out the restrictions and the access control that ought to be implemented in between these two systems. Almost no organization that I know has figured out what all their assets are and what their properties are. And that goes back to a few things. Number one is that it's complicated. Networks are insanely complicated. They're constantly moving. They're almost like a biological system. They're just, you know, you keep adding assets to them. You keep, you know, subtracting from them. You move things around, and then you add in mobile devices and even IoT devices, right, if they're part of the IT asset, if they fall under the IT rubric. You know, so, for example, mobile phones, are they an IoT device or are they IT? And I think mm-hmm. we, they've fallen on the IT side, but still they're sort of uh, – they're not what we would consider to be traditional static assets in that sense. So the, the second part of the problem is that people who write code aren't particularly good at exposing how things work. And so I remember being, for example, at a bank a while back and – they wanted to connect up to a partner bank. They wanted to be as restrictive as possible between the two. So, you know, you ask a really simple question like, okay, what what applications do you have that you want to expose to this partner bank? And they had a hard time answering that. They didn't actually know all of the applications. All right, well, let's take the dozen that you do know. Now, what kind of access do you need? What ports do they run over? Um, what protocols do they use? Meaning, for example, are they... Uh, for example, a remote procedure call, or are they just sort of a static port, or wh- what do they do? And almost no one could answer that, including the vendor. We called the vendor a couple times, and we said, you know, so how, if we locked this down to just a handful of ports that you use, what could it be? And they, a lot of times they couldn't answer. Hmm. So the problem that we run into is that there seems to be a lack of rigor all the way from software development uh, up to infrastructure implementation. And that's partially a lack of planning, but it's also because we're – in an amazing and, and glorious place in our history, which is that technology is changing so quickly that it's hard to come up with a firm strategy and say, this is how we're going to implement technology, and that's that. Instead, we have to be flexible because technology is changing so quickly. So on one hand, I understand why it happens. On the other hand, it's not particularly good for security. Yeah, and I think we end up with you know unintended consequences again. You know, thinking of security cameras and and them being herded into botnets, where you have this little computer sitting up on a wall, and as long as it still is doing its security camera job, you know, chances are someone won't even notice that it's using you know extra processing cycles to do the work of a botnet. That's right. That's exactly right. So I I do a talk now where um, I talk about the IoT and. 
a lot of it is sort of educating people what the IoT is in general. Mm-hmm. And there's four or five general categories, depending on how you look at it. And, you know, it's everything from consumer devices, so home home networking and things like that, all the way up to the industrial Internet of Things. So running manufacturing and energy and utility and even building controls. And then somewhere in between are wearables and implantables. So the medical industry and then connected cars. And so I put up slides and I say, OK, here's the front door of a traditional house. Uh, and I throw it out to the audience. I say, tell me where the IOT is. And so, you know, sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they come up with things that I haven't even thought of that, you know, may or may not yet be a product, but it's an, an excellent idea. At least they understand the concept of the IOT. Mm-hmm. But at the end, you know, there I have a slide up there, which is effectively the, um, if you remember Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the IOT's point in life is to blend into the background in many cases. It's supposed to be part of our life and it's supposed to make our lives better and easier. But it's not supposed to be something that we necessarily are aware of. You know, so for example, um, eventually we're going to have homeostasis monitors that are implanted into us permanently when we're born. You know, things that monitor heart rate and, and temperature and blood pressure and you know, galvanic skin response, you know, maybe maybe we have a, a lie detector built in there as well. Who knows? Mm-hmm. And the point there, though, is that now continuously computers can actually monitor us and say, hey, you, you look like you're headed for a bad place. You know, your blood pressure doesn't look good or or whatever. Um, and then predictively help us to maintain our health, which is awesome. But we shouldn't have to be aware of it. And so the same thing is true, you know, with toothbrushes. <laughs> how, how much time are you spending brushing your teeth? Well, it looks like you're headed for a real plaque uh, problem down the line, you know, or, <laughs> right. or whatever it is that you were. So IoT is supposed to blend into the background to a large extent. Um, I don't think it's insidious in that sense, but, you know, you want it to be those silent helpers that, that improve our, our life quality and, and our efficiency. So, but with that, to your point, is that, that it is hidden and when things are hidden that's where the bad guys are going to go so they're going to start compromising video um, video cameras dvrs baby monitors you know whatever and um, so that means that somebody has to watch them so the more that they fade into the background the more that we as security professionals also have to kind of fade into the background with them which is actually true, by the way, in another way, which is that security shouldn't be something that's invasive. It should be something that just is uh, – it's built in and and the regular consumer shouldn't have to worry about it too much. So so as the IoT fades into the background and the, and the threat actors also try to uh, compromise them, we as security researchers also have to go into the background and accompany those IoT devices. So I'm curious, you know, going back to industrial control systems – in the pre-internet days, how did these systems communicate with each other over distance? Did they just have dedicated networks that were just point to point? Well, some of them did. I mean, that was that was a luxury back then. Mm. Um, in fact, most, if you think about industrial control, a lot of that it was actually dial-up. So, you know, you'd go oh. to some uh, sluice gate for uh, some water control system or whatever, and there would be a modem in a little brick shed somewhere right beside it, and there would be some... Uh, there would be power to it, obviously, and there was going to there were some actuators and and a telephone line going into it. So, in fact, it's interesting when you there, a lot of that infrastructure still exists, and so you'll get uh, you know some sort of programmable logic controller or some sort of dedicated device that's sitting in some remote location that has a singular function, and then it'll connect back. Um, you know, maybe nowadays they'll connect it back through uh, some sort of uh, mobile connection. 
and uh, you know it's still but it's still using serial line protocols to get to those things and then it'll it eventually funnels up into a, an IP, an IP network but yeah there's a lot of um, antiquated devices still that run our infrastructure it would it would surprise most people by the way I want to touch on threat intelligence and um, what part threat intelligence plays in the type of work that you do yeah so it's interesting there's a there's a couple of um, angles to threat intel when it comes to the IoT. Right now, the IoT isn't necessarily being exploited on a per-device basis. And by that, I mean, you know, for example, cars aren't necessarily being targeted en masse uh, for some sort of insidious purpose. We monitor the dark web and different forums and look for people who are actually trying to do something. Uh, they're trying to find some vulnerability. They're trying to figure out how to monetize the connected car ecosystem. And so, you know, we've seen people out there talking about, hey, what are the vulnerabilities in the key fob um, protocol? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to go steal cars. That's my, that's what I want to do. And so now we can go back and we can inform tier one, tier two suppliers who create a lot of the key fobs um, that their protocol has a vulnerability that's been discovered on the dark web. Mm. And so that helps out there. Um, you know, we anticipate that what will end up happening is that the bad guys will eventually try to install ransomware on cars so that when you get in, you try to start your car in the morning, your in-vehicle infotainment system will pop up and say, hey, we've uh, ransomed your car until you pay us two Bitcoin. You know, you can't go to work. I, I anticipate that what will end up happening is that on the dark web, we'll see some chatter and people will ask questions like, and by the way, I have not personally seen this yet. The chatter might be out there. But they may say, you know, so what's the most common telematics unit that is installed in vehicles? Because the OEMs, the vehicle manufacturers, are no longer really building things. They're actually assembling parts from many tier one and tier two suppliers. Hmm. And so they'll go get their telematics unit from Harman or from Bose or from, you know, a bunch of different manufacturers. And so the dark web is going to say, so which, where am I going to get the most bang for my buck? So if I write a vulnerability that targets a telematics unit, I want to make sure I'm getting you know 60% of the car market or, or whatever. Right. And so that's number one question. Number two question is, okay, so what are these things built on? QNX or you know whatever, another type of embedded Linux, which is uh, what most of these in-vehicle infotainment systems are built on. So what are the vulnerabilities that I can exploit? How can I do it over the air? So that's where that's sort of the progression that we expect is that we're going to see people asking about um, how they optimize their bang for the buck, how they actually target vulnerabilities, and how can they do it remotely. So those are the three big questions. So Threat Intel informs us of those kind of things. Right now, I would say that you know when we're looking at, for example, Mirai and um, the latest one that I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Well, there's Ripper that's... Um a Reaper, I'm sorry. There's Reaper. Uh, there's Reaper yeah. that's uh, that hasn't been unleashed, but uh, is uh, you know coiled and ready to strike at any moment. Right. Exactly. And actually, that's an interesting case of threat intel as well, right? So you know, and I I actually did not get involved in the threat intel um, behind the scenes to look at what Reaper's potential was, but. You know, I'm sure that threat intel analysts were starting to see the signs of that. And, um, you know, part of the other thing is that if you start to tear apart some of this malware, you also see where the families come from and you can sort of infer intent from threat intel. Hmm. You know, so, for example, um, going back to Stuxnet and some of its descend descendants, uh, Dooku, et cetera, et cetera, um, we understand that those are nation state weapons that were assembled. Um, and then going to some of the ones that came from was it Angry Bear? Oh, I can't think of all the right. ones. Yeah, um, Cozy Bear, but, Fancy Bear. Yeah, yep. exactly. 
So, you know, that's where threat intel comes in. It can inform us in advance. It can, it can also help us to understand who the threat actors are and what they're actually going to be using this uh, weapon for when it actually is unleashed. Or actually, when it is unleashed, we can actually go back and sort of use the reversing uh, capability, but also blend it with what we know from threat intel and determine who the threat actor was at that point and, and find out what the intent was, where else we may want to look, by the way. You know, so it's not just, hey, we found this in... I don't know, the financial sector, let's just make something up, or, or energy and utility in the case of Cozy Bear, and then say, okay, where else what might we expect to find this? Because now we know the threat actor and we know what their intent is. So we might also start looking um, in uh, other utilities, or we might start looking in uh, production of, of some goods that might be also a target from this particular threat actor. Um, so threat intel has a number of aspects here, and it, and it usually in, in the perfect world, it's going to be predictive. It'll it'll inform us what we can expect, if not when, and we can start to rally our defenses. In an imperfect world, it will help us to clean up the mess and make sure that we've cleaned it up properly. Well, what are your expectations for how we can expect the IoT to uh, to become part of our lives, both professionally and personally? I think there's two two future. Well, probably three actually, um, but one is not. One is kind of coming today. So first off. Artificial intelligence, you know, machine learning, deep learning, all of that is going to be enriched by the IoT, right? Because going back to my um, conversation before, which was basically context gives you better insights. And so the more that we can gather information about the environment, so whether it's, you know, through temperature, whether it's through geolocation, whether it's um, actually looking at the person themselves, you know, by measuring their response skill their temperature, their heart rate, et cetera, et cetera. All of that can be plugged into some artificial intelligence algorithm, which can bring better outcomes to whatever we're trying to accomplish. And AI is being used in all kinds of interesting things, you know, to, to detect threat actors uh, going through airports, um, to uh, determine baseline um, traffic in a normal network and then look for anomalies. So there's a lot of applications of AI to cybersecurity. Um, so that's number one. Number two uh, for the IoT is going to be robotics. So we've got the IoT, which is basically sensor measuring a lot of the physical environment. And it may affect the environment through actuators, you know, things like opening up gates in a sewage plant or or letting your car drive, right? So mm-hmm. maybe operating the brakes and the steering wheel and things like that. And I think sort of the bellwether of this is the uh, Amazon Echo and Google Home, and you know, there's a few others that are coming out on the market, which are personal digital assistants. But the next evolution of those things is going to be to uh, come about in more of a robotics fashion to actually accomplish missions at the behest of the, of its human human overlords. I guess. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, Roomba might be one vision of that, but eventually, one of the things that that we think about is what's going to make people more comfortable. With these robots, like a room is a little bit creepy. It's not too creepy because it's a disc that that rolls around. That's not too bad. Right. But if you've ever seen the video online um, of the military applications, they have this thing that walks along and it looks kind of like a dog, but it's yeah. really creepy. Looking. Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> kind so, of awesome. Also kind of creepy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. But, but you know what's kind of interesting? There's a guy because they're pr- proving the... Uh, proving how well it can stabilize itself. There's a guy who like kicks it and it kind of tips over, but it catches itself before it falls over. Mm-hmm. And, and you almost, there's this, it's this, um, trying to think of what the term is when you, uh, 
it anthropomorphize right. the uh, robot. There's another term, though, when you right. empathize. With, There's the, uh, uh, the Uncanny Valley situation as well. Yes, exactly. Well, and that's exactly where I'm going to, as a matter of fact. So when I watch that video, I go, creepy. Then the guy kicks it, and I go, oh, poor robot. And the guy's <laughs> being mean to it. So at some point, we are going to cross Uncanny Valley to where we accept robots. And I don't know where that is yet, but that's going to be when they become uh, acceptable for us to interact with the, with everyday life. And so we're going to move close, closer and closer to that. And we're going to have this, you know, it's going to be creepy for a while until we actually get to the humanizing of robots, which will bring up a whole separate set of issues, by the way. I've heard people talk about ethics of robots and when we actually emancipate them because now AI has made them fully functioning uh, parts of society and potentially equivalent with with the human race. I have no idea. That's bizarre. But yeah. uh, but that's not my point. My point, though, is that we will accept them only when we actually can see them as something that's not creepy anymore. And part of that, I think, is acclimation. But part of it's also how they evolve into a form that's acceptable to us on a regular basis. Um, so robotics is part of the equation as well. The other future of the Internet of Things, um, and let me just preface it by saying there's an interesting movement out there called transhumanism Mm. um, or biohacking or also called grinding, Mm -hmm. which is people who are putting stuff into their bodies. But and that's sort of again, that's sort of the first phase where people are taking LEDs and putting them on a board and then um, putting a Bluetooth chip on there as well and wrapping them in some uh, some coding that's acceptable to the human body, at least temporarily, you know, so to avoid rejection then they will open up their hand and cram it underneath there and sew themselves back up because mm-hmm. this is not something the medical establishment is allowed to do. <laughs> so there's sort of elective implantation. Um, and there's people who are putting RFID chips in there in the webbing of their fingers so that they can walk up to doors and open it or pay or whatever. Aside from the security implications, you know, we're going to be start moving more towards this convergence of human and machine anyway, that may also be on a convergence path with robotics, right? As we become more robotic, maybe robots become more like us. Robots will become more like us through AI. Maybe we actually all converge into, you know, what's the difference between humans and robots at that point? But I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Still, the point is that uh, there will be elective transhumanism, they're biohacking, where people at some point will opt to cut off an arm or a leg for bionic parts. Maybe not, maybe so, maybe not. But the real goal here is to get to the state that, you know, for example, Walt Disney um, was presumably looking for and is embodied in that movie. I think it's called Transcendence. I think it's Johnny Depp who's in that one, Hmm. Um, where he eventually uploads himself to a computer and gets rid of his his biological corporal self um, it exists in in a computer so and again that's a little bit extreme but as we go along we are going to uh, at least the first step is going to be what i was talking about before which is put some sensors in our bodies that can now connect back across the internet to our healthcare providers that's empowered by some sort of ai so that as we go through life all of our our human telemetry is consolidated somewhere and there's predictive analytics that are looking for things that might go bad. So better than us saying, you know, hey, let's go in for a blood test every so often and, and you know, maybe once a year and see if we can detect markers for a particular cancer or for whatever, then just going through life, we'll be able to detect that stuff predictively. So that's sort of the first step. And then eventually it'll be things that are more um, 
that enhance our humanity or I shouldn't say that, that enhance our bodies, that take us beyond the biological capabilities. So it may be a way to infuse more oxygen into our lungs if you're a long-distance runner. And that's going to be some sort of, uh, you know, think about a, a heart implant, the um, mm-hmm. pacemaker. But something that will make your lungs better if you're a particular, if you're a runner. Or maybe people go in and it'll be paired, for example, with uh, plastic surgery to flatten out your nostrils so that there's less wind resistance, but you get more uh, capability to suck air in or, or whatever. You know, I, I can't predict all of those things, but we are going to become part of the IoT um, by putting stuff in our body or augmenting our body. And we're going to connect it to the network because, A, it's going to give us more predictive ability. It's going to be able to sense how well we're performing. And we can also then tune it remotely. So, you know, back to that person having some way to change the oxygen uh, mix in their lungs. As their heart rate increases, et cetera, et cetera, then maybe what they want to do is um, they want to be able to tune that particular system so that it optimally inject the right amount of oxygen based upon, you know, microsecond by microsecond changes in in the uh, the performance of the rest of the body, you know, and then connect all that back. So you've got the Boston Marathon or the New York Marathon, and now you collect all this data about people um, and how well they performed, who won, who didn't win, who vomited at the finish line, whatever, and then change all of the telemetry so that the next time that they run that same marathon, uh, everybody op- operates at an even, even better level. So the three things are AI, obviously, robotics, and IoT as it incorporates into our own physical body. So it sounds like um, you're on the the hopeful side rather than the pessimistic side. I love the ideas about the IoT. I think that there is so much opportunity for it. I do worry, though, that as we connect, that we're going to expose ourselves in ways that could be catastrophic. Uh, But at the same time, and you know me well enough now, I'm not a catastrophist quite yet. You know, so for example, I wrote an article a couple of years ago on connected automobiles and that we should not freak out because of the what-if scenarios. We should definitely move towards a more secure IoT, you know, in that particular scenario, we should move towards more secure design of, of automotive connected automobiles. But that shouldn't stop our adoption because the benefits outweigh, at least now, the feasible risks, you know. So in other words, there's not a lot of um, motive for cyber criminals to harm you in your car. Certainly, you know, as I pointed out before, to install ransomware. Um, But ransomware is not catastrophic. Ransomware is just a nuisance, right? So I think that, you know, if we're talking about saving hundreds of billions of dollars or even more on fuel costs, on people's time, on loss of lives, actual safety. And so if we can actually ameliorate that by connecting these things up and, you know, we're kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit on whether or not hackers are going to start eroding that savings, right, by actually hurting people. Um, I think that the calculus right now, the way that we understand the risk, which is, you know, a little bit fuzzy math, weighs more heavily on the feature side than it does on the risk side. And that's one of the things that we need to keep watching Threat Intel for is to make sure that that calculus doesn't change drastically in a short period of time, because then we're going to have to uh, we're going to change the way that we look at it. But in that interim, it is it is our responsibility to to understand the potential risks and to mitigate them to the extent that we can now through design and through operational monitoring and response. Our thanks to Chris Poulin for joining us. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.